Welcome to Faithful Sayings, a podcast of the Olson Park Church of Christ. For a few minutes, let's talk about God's Word. I'm Kyle Pope, preacher at Olson Park. Thanks for joining us. We've all heard people use the expression, now that's living. It's usually applied when we see people enjoying an experience or a lifestyle that is considered desirable and pleasant. In most cases, this determination is based on physical things. Does the experience involve enjoyable activities? Have those to whom it is applied attained a certain income level or social class? The inference is that those outside of this condition, whether they realize it or not, are not really living because they don't have what these people have attained. There is an Australian magazine that uses this expression as its title, The publication is aimed at those over 55 and promotes cruises, luxury retirement communities, and other experiences that can change the supposedly dull and mundane life of most people within this age group into a state in which it could be said of them, now that's living. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he is not concerned with cruises, retirement communities, or other material conditions to which our world might aspire. Nonetheless, he does promote and advocate a condition in which those who attain it may recognize that the life they lived in the past, in many respects, was not really living. Paul tells these Christians, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 from the New King James Version. Most translations supply the words, He made alive, or their equivalent, putting them in italics to indicate that they are not present in the Greek. They are supplied to help English speakers understand a convention that was more suited to ancient Greek or Latin than it is to modern English. In these languages, it was not uncommon for a writer to build suspense in setting the stage for something by waiting until the end of the thought to supply the verb. In the Greek, it is not until verse 5 that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, offers the climax in his declaration that God made us alive, Ephesians 2, 5b. Before this climax, Paul tells them what they used to be. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, out of the New American Standard Version. Is Paul speaking to those who had been raised from the dead by some miracle performed by the Lord or his apostles? Not necessarily. He describes a condition in which, quote, we all once conducted ourselves, unquote, Ephesians 2, 3a. Certainly not everyone in the church in Ephesus, nor Paul himself, had physically died and been resurrected, but Paul twice describes this as being, quote, dead in trespasses, Ephesians 2, 1b and 5a. It was a condition, quote, according to the course of this world, unquote, Ephesians 2, 2a. Conduct in accordance with, quote, the lusts of the flesh, unquote, by which they sought to fulfill the, quote, desires of the flesh and of the mind, unquote, Ephesians 2, verse 3. The mind and flesh of a dead corpse have no desires they seek to fulfill. Paul is not talking about physical death. We note, however, that Paul describes a condition that most in the world would think of as really living. 
Don't we all want to do whatever our flesh desires? Don't all of us want to have whatever makes our heart and mind feel fulfilled? Wouldn't most look at such a condition and exclaim, Now that's living! Paul, however, asserts the extraordinary claim that those who pursued such a course were, in fact, dead. Now, Paul was not a madman, as Festus would claim in Acts chapter 26, verses 24 and 25. Paul was addressing a spiritual condition. In sin, they had not followed God's will. They lived as sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 2c. The course fulfilled the will of Satan, quote, the prince of the power of the air, unquote, Ephesians 2, 2b. All who sin submit their will to the spirit and character of the devil, not through some possession or subversion of free will, but by following his example. Compare John 8, 44. This makes us, quote, by nature children of wrath, unquote, Ephesians 2, 3b. Not as if to say, we couldn't help it, or our nature was incapable of any other course. In Scripture, conduct that becomes habitual through repeated practice and custom can be said to be nature. Compare 1 Corinthians 11, verse 14. The fact is that just as Adam and Eve were promised death, should they violate the command of God, Genesis 2:17, all human beings, having attained an accountable state, who sin against God, die spiritually. Like Adam and Eve, they die in the fact that they are separated from God. Compare Isaiah 59 and verse 2. In such a condition, we are children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3c. The psalmist said, God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7, 11b, from the New King James Version. We may think we are alive, but the Holy Spirit tells us through the Apostle, now that's not living. So how can a dead man live? When we use the expression, now that's living, we are not saying that all others do not really exist. We are elevating a condition, usually on the basis of very superficial things, and declaring it to be superior. Paul does something much like this, but not as a result of his own superficial judgments. The Christians in Ephesus had changed from dead men who thought they were alive to living souls who could now know they were truly alive because of God's judgment of things. Before the climax of verse 5, Paul tells us something about God. He is the subject of the verb, He made us alive, in Ephesians 2, 5b. But who is He? He is one who, quote, is rich in mercy, unquote, Ephesians 2, 4b. We were dead. We deserved punishment. So how can a dead man live? Because of his great love with which he loved us, Ephesians 2, 4c. A fundamental assertion of the New Testament is the claim that God is love, 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16. In Paul's words to the Ephesians, one might struggle to fully grasp this. He has told them that God viewed them while living in the flesh as spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, 5. He has told them that in such a state God was angry with them, accounting them as children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. Can an angry God be said to be one who is love? Absolutely. Our world has skewed its concept of love to imagine that love means that one who loves another is dispassionate with regard to the behavior of the object of his or her love. The loving father is right to be moved to anger when someone acts to harm his child. The loving mother feels outrage when her son or daughter is hurt. What should they feel 
when that child or daughter acts to harm themselves? Do parents have no right to feel anger when the guidance they have offered for the good of their children is rejected? The anger of God towards our sin is in no way incompatible with the beautiful definition of his character that God is love. The Christian is made alive, Ephesians 2.1 from the New King James Version. It is a mistake to see this as only a future condition. Paul told the Ephesians, God made, past tense, us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 5b. He has raised, past tense, us up together, and even made, past tense, us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6. This is not just talking about what will happen in the age to come. The next verse addresses that. He did these things, quote, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7. What he has already done will demonstrate in the ages to come his loving, gracious nature. Now the Christian enjoys a renewed fellowship with God. When did this begin? Paul told the Christians in Rome that in baptism the one who turns to Christ is, quote, buried with him through baptism, unquote. So that just as Jesus was, quote, raised from the dead, unquote, the disciple of Christ might, quote, walk in newness of life, unquote. Romans 6, verse 4. In baptism, one is buried with Christ. In baptism, then, is when one is raised up together with him, Ephesians 2, 6. Some reject that baptism is the point at which one is, quote, raised up together with him, unquote. Because they miss the point Paul makes in describing how the Ephesians were made alive. Paul twice asserts, by grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 5b and 8a. The second time he makes this assertion, he adds, through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Ephesians 2, 8b through 9. How is God saved by grace? God told the Romans that the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1, verse 16. His assertion to the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved, cannot mean by grace alone. How then could the gospel be the power of God unto salvation? To the Ephesians, he asserts, it is by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8a. Does that mean by faith alone? James said demons, quote, believe and tremble. James 2, verse 19. Yet demons are not saved. Compare Matthew 25, verse 41. We must note that Paul says this change from death to life was not of yourselves, Ephesians 2, 8c, even declaring not of works, Ephesians 2, 9a. What works has Paul mentioned in this text prior to this? He has mentioned trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. Walking according to the course of the world, Ephesians 2, 2. And conduct governed by, quote, the lust of the flesh, unquote, Ephesians 2, 3. Did any of these works save us? No. When we did these things, we may have thought we were alive, but we were really dead. The love that God has shown in Christ offered life in spite of these works. This was God's grace. This was His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 7b. Are sinful works Paul's only focus? 
He told Titus, The kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Titus 3, 4-5a No good works moved God to send Jesus to die. One cannot do enough good deeds to forgive a single sin. But does this mean that man does nothing to accept God's grace? Paul told the Ephesians, they were saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8b. But he told Titus, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, Titus 3, 5b, a reference to baptism. Peter said, baptism now saves you, explaining that this is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 3, 21, from the New American Standard Version. To say that salvation is by faith alone ignores that Jesus said that faith is a work. See John 6, verse 29. To reject baptism's role in God's grace, as if it is a work of ourselves, is to miss its purpose in the gospel plan of salvation. The mercy of a loving God in Christ Jesus has called us to, quote, obey the gospel, unquote. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, and 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Souls dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 have nothing to which they can boast, Ephesians 2, 9b. But in accepting the grace of God, those reborn in Christ become, quote, His workmanship, Ephesians 2, 10a. The lifeless creature owes everything to its creator. The formerly dead child of God is one created in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2, 10b. To imagine that being saved by grace means we have no duty to obey denies the very purpose for which a Christian is saved in the first place. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. To live in sin is to practice what killed us in the first place. Only in faithful obedience can it be truly said of us, now that's living. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our work, visit olsonpark.com. If you're in Amarillo, Texas, come worship with us at 4700 Andrews Avenue in Amarillo, 79106. And please tune in again to Faithful Saved.